Hey there, welcome to another episode of That Can't Be Right. I'm Eric Ballinger and I'm here with Joe Miller. And this week we are going to talk about how research should happen and how it actually does. So let's start with just having a ground, like uh, some groundwork, some foundation to this. We're all kind of familiar, especially as graduate students, as the typical flow of a scientific question and hypothesis. We typically go from formulating a research question to then formulating a testable hypothesis, selecting our instruments of measurement, gathering the data, analyzing the data, reporting the results and limitations, wonderfully concluding or drawing conclusions or even non-existent conclusions and being happy with those results and then trying to figure out what future research would look like to go from this. And personally, this is one of my favorite things about science. I love this philosophy. However, the reality is that that often doesn't work that way. Specifically in terms of, I think in terms of coursework, where, so you should have, you should be able to formulate a question. And I think everyone has that down. And even within any of the coursework, we still have to formulate some sort of research question. But unfortunately, that's kind of where this starts to wobble pretty heavy. Although I do want to go back for a second. So what we talk about formulating a testable hypothesis. I think that's something that a lot of people struggle with, even in grad school. I've just watched, I have watched other people in my cohort have difficulty with that idea. They may, they may be able to come up with interesting research questions, but the hypotheses part gives them trouble. Mm -hmm. Mostly because for a good hypothesis, it needs to be a yes or no question. So they don't do that. They have really vague ideas and then everything else collapses. And some of that might be a result of this other situation, how we've handled research in, in classes, where... You come up with a research question that you think will make the person who's going to read your research happy, and which may or may not have any sort of interest to you, and then you find data. Instead of collecting data, you find data based off of commonly used scales. So you go out and find um, these publicly available data sets, and... Or if you're lucky, they'll also just give you a data set, which is nice because then you don't have to collect data. But then you have that other problem of, I have no idea why you asked this group of people these, these questions. questions. Yeah, <laughs> like, I, yeah. I, I think one thing that we're but we're we're very much trying to like fit our question to that party. Yeah. And you're taking it from very much of a research project kind of thing for a class. But that's very true of a lot of things outside of just coursework. We're very much trying to fit it to a journal sometimes. We have like a journal in mind we're trying to publish to. We also have a professor we're hoping to get an A in. So we have to make sure that we're going right down the line that they want us to go down. But there is a huge bout where we no longer are collecting the data anymore. Yeah, absolutely. There's lots of situations where that happens. Some of it does stem from the amount of data that's available now. Oh, you yeah. You can find all kinds of stuff out there, which is great. Although you do have to sort of sift through and figure out what on earth they were doing. It's like I look at uh, data from like the Pew Research Center a lot uh, just because I'm bored. Or looking through things on, uh, on the CDC. And sometimes you wonder what on earth are they thinking when they ask these questions. And I'm sure it made sense to someone. And it doesn't necessarily to me. 
But you find this data, and they're using this scale that made sense to them, and now trying to make it into something that you can convert into a research question that hopefully will appease the uh, the interested party, whether yeah. it be a professor or a uh, journal editor. And then the next step, instead of gathering data and then analyzing it, you analyze the data that someone else has found, and you use methods that journals tend to approve. So we're, we'll talk a little bit more about this in depth. Remember that the caveat that we're kind of talking about this is the reality between, you know, I don't know, fantasy almost, um, the joy, the expectation, the reality versus the expectations. And a lot of these times there are certain methods as both me and Eric have an extensive knowledge of methods that are more complicated than your typical simple analyses such as t-test, comparison of means, ANOVA, or multiple regression. We have these wonderful tools at our disposal that both me and Eric want to sometimes like go all out on and try to explore and use, but at the same time, we are not able to analyze them in that way. But there's also the opposite problem as well. Sometimes the research question that you've asked and the hypotheses that you have are best answered by an ANOVA. But you know damn well that the educational researcher is not going to publish an article that just has an ANOVA. Yeah. So you have to come up with something more complicated, despite the fact that an ANOVA would get the job done. Almost, but that's the, it's, it's, this, it's this happy medium almost. You're having this moment where you're having, it has to be a little bit more complicated, but not too complicated. Right. You have to be in this like weird middle area. Luckily, multiple aggression came in. Um, and that sometimes can be where we're going in most parts. Sometimes we have to use a slightly, what looks a little bit more complicated, right. which is essentially an ANOVA. It's still a general linear model. But, but it, it sounds fancier. It sounds slightly fancier. And you can draw cooler graphs. If I say I'm running a mediation analysis within multiple regression, or I'm using a logistic regression model, all of a sudden things get, sounds just fancier enough. Rather than, I ran a t-test and these people are different. <laughs> Great. Right, okay, so you're going to analyze this data that you found, or you've been given, or whatever, using a method that you're, you think the journal will approve, or that your professor is really fond of. Uh, we have one professor in the department where he has said multiple times that if you can't explain it with an ANOVA, it's probably not real, uh, which is great, because uh, most things you can, in fact, explain with an ANOVA. But I digress. Hold on. No, we'll, um, that's a conversation for another day. Um, um, so you've got this, and you notice one thing that we've kind of forgot in, in talking about the reality or publishable research uh, we didn't start with a hypothesis. We started with a data set and kind of a research question or research idea. And then we did some stuff. And we've, we've done some exploratory data analysis. And we now create our hypothesis and adjust it in such a fashion so that it fits the statistics. I personally think the best way to go about it, instead of saying like a hypothesis or a research question, is in reality... You have this field of focus that is a collection of thoughts that slowly narrow over time depending on what your research question slash interested parties' same collected thoughts are. 
and you kind of narrow it down to try to match both of them. You're trying to match almost what their research collected thoughts are with your data set and research collected thoughts as much as possible. I'll buy that. So you now have the hypothesis, kinda, that is based off of what the statistics show. And you're gonna report that using whatever method they seem to want, regardless of appropriateness. And and then you're gonna draw some conclusions. You're gonna clearly show that your hypotheses were correct mm -hmm. because of the statistics. And or you just completely ignore it when you find out that it's a non-significant result. Oh, yeah, that's the other one. Yeah, um, if, if, approaching it, significance. Approaching significance. If it's you have ways of kind of making it sound better than what it really is, or, eh. or ignoring corrections for multiple tests run. So if, you know, if you still are, if you're in psych science, you you have your p-value of 0.05. Uh, unless you run four t tests on the same on the same data where your, your p-value is really 0 0.0125 now, but you were under 0 0.05, so it's significant, and it's fine. Um. Oh. R.A. <laughs> Fisher's rolling over in his grave right now. Um. Um, right, so you draw these conclusions regardless of the method that you used. doesn't matter if it's appropriate. Uh, as long as you have a graph, graphs are great. Doesn't matter that the questions asked were asked to the wrong group of people, that they're, so they're not generalizable. Uh, and then you're going to spend some time. You're going to talk about the limitations of the study. Things like it was an old data set. Um, um, they asked the they used questions from the wrong version of the MSLQ, or your there was incomplete data. There was incomplete data, or your population. You were talking about the importance of. Uh, self-regulated learning in underprivileged populations and you're using data that you received in a data set from maybe from like the national report card uh, and it all came from a school made up exclusively of white kids but hey that's the data that you had but one thing that you're kind of not talking about is this is actually a huge part of it what we just exemplified here was how long you can spend on the limitation section and then be done the limitation section sometimes um, there is a wonderful like comic online pretty much like shows as you progress in your career where you just start throwing things into the limitation section at the end of the study like you're just like oh well I need to fill out some pages or I don't need to or depending on journal article length and it's just a huge hugely quick portion you almost don't think about the limitations until completely after the fact Right. Well, because limitations are a huge part of figuring out um, what went wrong with your research. And if you didn't plan any of it, really nothing went wrong with it. There's a line, if you don't have a destination, every road's the right road. And so if you don't actually have a real plan, then you have no limitations. Everything worked out exactly the way you wanted it to because mm -hmm. you didn't know how you wanted it to work out. And that kind of leads to the last thing. So, so we're pretty much outlining a typical article here, here, like a typical academic article. And the last part comes in where we start guessing what the research could come from this. What can we do with this knowledge? And then where can we go for in the future? And sometimes there's a lot of weight placed here for how little time is devoted. 
one thing we want to say, or me and Eric kind of have thought about in the past, is we're not trying to be very nihilistic or pessimistic with this situation. The sad part is this is very much what happens out of the pressures from multiple sources, either pressure to finish your graduate graduate career, uh, pressure to publish because of um, promotional needs, pressure from a course since it's 12 weeks long or 16 weeks long. Sometimes there are many reasons why this beautiful process, this beautiful philosophy, and I think Eric, you said it was from Descartes. I'm not as familiar with philosophy as much, but it becomes this very... Founder of the modern era of uh, Yep, I have no idea. Sorry. I have no idea. I'm just going to be completely oblivious to that stuff. But the thing is, it, it's very much where we take this beautiful formula of how it should be done and it kind of gets a rush job and it's not necessarily from one source that this rush job comes in from yeah so the reality is that the scientific method takes a lot of time which people don't often have especially like we're talking about with i think it's a an artifact of how coursework is usually run we all go through a research methods class. I, I hope if you're in a psych, if you're in a psychology graduate program and they don't have you go through a research methods class, you may not be in a particularly good graduate program. And we talk about the appropriate way that this works, and that is how we started. You, know, you have you have research questions, you have testable hypotheses, you gather data, you analyze it, and you report what you found. And in that particular formula, there sometimes you'll be wrong. Actually. Uh, big chunk of the time you'll be wrong and that's fine because that's you still learn something but that isn't sufficient and we take these little shortcuts often in classes because your professor doesn't want you to get really good at writing up reports of finding nothing especially if you spend a lot of time with it i mean if we skip almost all of the steps except gather data gathering data takes forever uh, I'm currently working on a project with my uh, research with my assistantship supervisor, and we've been collecting data for about a month. We you know, we actually have hypotheses and stuff, we, so we've done this more or less the right way. There there is some there's some funny fuzziness going on, but uh, we we've got around some of that uh, because uh, we actually uh, registered it at, with the Open Science Foundation, and we'll talk about that maybe next week or the week after. But you, in a class, you don't have a month to just kill trying to find out if you have something to write about because mm -hmm. that first eight weeks you're pretty much getting familiar with what the class is about you're getting the foundational pieces usually you don't really have time or if you're in again like i am if you're in a class on development that's impossible yeah that, that's longitudinal studies like oh we're gonna look at this stuff for the next three years no we're not we're gonna look at this stuff for the next week mm -hmm. <laughs> and there's also this other weird artifact that because data collection takes so long, I know I've never done this because I can't think this way, but I know others are encouraged when they gather data to have one research question that they're intending to answer with this data set, and then just gather a bunch of other data as well. So you end, that's how, if you're in your psychology class, if you're an undergrad listening to this, and you're taking a survey, and you're wondering why there's 200 questions, that's because about 30 of them matter for their study, and the rest of them are for things that they think they might use later. Mm -hmm. For me, that seems like a really bad habit. I'd much rather... But then again, I also 
know some of those people that have done that, and they have four papers out of the same data set. But as a degree of resources that we often have to figure out of how we're going to do this with the limited amount of money, limited amount of time, limited amount of graduate student lackeys that we can use, it's very much a consideration of all these things that create this tornado, this shrinkage of what, like, of this original research idea, of this idea of how you go about a scientific question. And I really don't know if there is ever going to be a solution to this because of how far we've gotten away from this original formulaic thing and the kind of pressures not only graduate students, undergraduate students, and professors go through on a daily basis. One thing that we'll never be able to change is the time commitment that often is required. You were kind of talking earlier about this, about developmental classes. There is absolutely no way we're going to be able to do a more three-year study within 16 weeks. Physics says no. Exactly. You can't go about it in that way. But it's something that people need to be more aware of. That doesn't mean what we're doing is necessarily problematic. But there is some things that we need to start being aware of when it comes down to science. Science is not this black and white clear-cut formula it is a degree of art it's a degree of it's a degree of joy it's a degree of um trying to find something you're passionate about praying for a miracle that you, what you're passionate about is actually able to be in like compass into what you're able to do in the classrooms i honestly think that most professors spend about maybe one paper out of every two or three years that's actually on a passion project of theirs but it, actually i think there might really be an answer um, the stuff that happens in reality, there are a number of reasons why it happens, and I think that is the crux of, of, of the issue. If someone is taking shortcuts, like, I'm just going to use a published data set, find something in there, make up some hypotheses, throw in some uh, hastily put together lit review, and call it a day, that's a bad person. That's the, the, that's just all there is to it, because they don't even care. What is happening is you look at uh, certain restrictions. So you have to use a publicly available data set because you don't have access to, to participants. Great. You should have some idea what you think you're going to find before you look at the data set. You can still follow the same patterns, you, and you're obviously not going to have be able to select the appropriate instruments, but you know what instruments they used, and you know why they used them. That's great. Come up with a hypothesis. Grab the data, look at the data, and see if, if they agree with you, and, and work from there. But we start with this idea that well, we're cheating on the, at this level because we have to. Mm -hmm. And then it becomes really easy to cheat on the next level because, well, you had to before, and now you've got to do this other thing. So it's okay. You analyze this data and it didn't say what you thought, well, what if we just change one of the hypotheses to be this other thing instead? Or what if we change the direction? Or if we don't have a direction, all we discovered is that these two things are different as opposed to working in the direction we thought. Yeah, that's what we can do. And it becomes this slide. But I think if we're a little more conscientious about it, you can still cheat some of this stuff. Uh, because you have to. And because... 
and even I, I like I said, I prefer to do research projects where there is I have a distinct question and I do stuff to find out an answer to that question. I know that's really untenable because that would require an infinite number of participants and I don't have that. You know, again, if we go back to really strict definitions of statistics, like, oh, you can't do this because um, you're violating independence. Well, of course I'm violating independence. I've run out of people. I have to keep asking them all the same questions over and over again. I, I, I think you're still getting on to a point. Where do you start calling in an adjustment versus cheating? I think if you change your hypothesis after you've opened the data, yeah, that's cheating. I think that's actually a good way of saying about it. Like, like there are a degree that you have to adjust, but there should be certain points where you're like, nope, we're just cheating at this point. Right. Well, again, if you have a hypothesis, which is a yes or no question, and you and you run your, your uh, analysis, and it says you're wrong, saying you're wrong should be fine. It shouldn't be, oh, well, I have to change this. Uh, that way it'll be significant, and then it'll be publishable. Or, I didn't want a significant effect. I actually, one of my uh, posters, uh, my goal was a non-significant effect. And I was a little confused when I got one. But that's what I reported. <laughs> was I expected to find this thing, and I didn't find that thing. And I think what's what happens, and again, this is almost certainly going to be something we'll talk about later. You know, the file drawer effect. So it isn't just, I don't think these people are being nefarious. I think it's that culturally, if you're publishing within academia, uh, you need to have a degree of realism. I, I think a degree of realism is being aware of what you can and cannot do, trying to shoot for the optimistic, but also being okay when you don't always make it. Right, yeah, okay, yeah, definitely. So again, coming back, which also brings us back to that limitation thing. So if you know you have this research question and you know you can't actually gather data yourself, and you've, but you found a data set, and if you start up front to say, hey, this is a limitation, I know that this isn't really generalizable to this other population. What it is is a good representation of whatever the actual survey uh, collected, mm -hmm. uh, as opposed to, oh, well, these are the limitations because that's what I say they are. You should know what your limitations are coming up front. Again, like the study that has been collected for the last month, I know that we're going to have to say that it may not be generalizable because all of our, our sample is made up mostly of white women from the Midwest because that's our population group. And that's also a thing that we need to be aware of. The right. limitation section is a wonderful benefit that should not be spent five minutes on. Right. Because you can have this degree of, wow... I really don't have this. Somebody should try to look into this because this is an interesting way to go about it. The only way that science survives is through collaboration. But also, science only survives if we're willing to admit that we have our faults as well. Right. But uh, we don't want to do that currently. And I think that's a huge problem. But it can be, uh, it really it can be, it's a cultural problem. It's not a, this is impossible to fix, it's just a, and there are things shifting that way, which, uh, again, I want to talk about those in, in a different podcast, uh, Open Science. So, like, through the Open Science Foundation, mm -hmm. uh, APS is really pushing for open science and open data, as well as uh, replication studies. Mm -hmm. You know I mean? But that's 
And those are two totally things will probably actually like lead to in the next few weeks, especially with the um, open science and replication studies. Replication studies is one thing I'm extremely interested in. Um, I know that it's a little bit more difficult than people like to give credit for. They just think, why is it not immediately like working? Why can't I just have an easy replication study? It's because you were wrong. <laughs> but Or there's a lot of effects. I can't think of the one off the top of my head, but we'll save those ideas for next week. I truly believe that there is a degree of nuance that can come from being more open, more collaborative, as well as being more realistic and being aware that the constraints that are being placed on the original perfect formula for science is no longer possible. I'm not sure I agree with this. No longer possible. It's not easy, and it never was, but the requirements for publication, which we talked about last week, make it incredibly difficult. You know, maybe that's a better way. I'm just going more <laughs> black and white with it, just going with the straight, hey, it's... They're incompatible. It, it, it's... So it's not, it's not impo- that it's impossible, it's just they don't play nice. If that's... you have to publish something every, you know... Six months, or no, it was four months if I started calculating it out, right? Right. It so was it... like every four months. If you have to publish every four months, and it takes at least two months for them to get back to you with your review, um, and a month to collect data, you're going to start getting fuzzy with something. And and I, and I have to say that that can't be right. Okay, folks. Remember, science is your friend. Unless you uh, don't want it to be. <laughs> and we will talk to you next week about more stuff on science and psychology.